This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee, and I'm a board-certified emergency critical care veterinary specialist and toxicologist. Today, you guys are in for a treat, so if you have any questions about what to feed your dog and cat, you want to pay attention. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Lindsay Bullen, who's a board-certified veterinary nutritionist at Veterinary Specialty Hospital of the Carolinas. We'll be right back after these messages. As a veterinarian, I want you to keep your dog as healthy and happy as possible. That's why I'm a huge advocate of Brockwell's Pets Pro Probiotics. Probiotics are used to help stabilize and strengthen the intestinal flora. They have a lot of positive effects on the entire body system. Simply sprinkle the desired amount on your dog's food and it can help boost the immune system, treat diarrhea and constipation, restore gut health, and lower cholesterol levels. Plus, it's vet recommended, made in the U.S., and comes with a money-back guarantee. For more information, go to rockwellpetspro.com. That's rockwellpetspro.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. So excited to do this podcast today because we're going to be talking about nutrition, which is an area that it seems like most dog and cat owners have a ton of questions. So today we are joined with Dr. Lindsay Bullen, who again is a board certified veterinary nutritionist. This means beyond vet school, she went on to do a residency for two years and is specialized in the area of nutrition. So Dr. Bullen, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Lee, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really, really excited to speak with everyone today. Excellent. Well, just so our audience knows who you are, do you mind giving us a little bit of background about who you are, where you trained, what you do now, and most importantly, why you developed a passion about nutrition? I would love to. So uh, a little bit about me as an individual. I absolutely love what I do. I'm very, very fortunate that I love my job, but that isn't who I am as a person. I am a nutritionist, but that's only one part of me. I am also um, a spouse. I'm married for 10 years and I'm a mother of two young boys. I have a four-year-old who's about to be five, Arthur, and a one-year-old about to be two, Rowan. I finished my nutrition training at NC State University in 2017, during which time actually during my residency, I had my first Arthur, (laughs) not recommended, guarantee that. But something that I find um, kind of fun is that I actually did everything at NC State. I went to undergrad there. I did my DVM, my internship, my residency, and my postdoctoral training. And for any of you that like fun facts, I actually used to be the mascot for a year. I know, right? So if you find any images of Ms. Boof from about the 2010, I think 2011. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was a 2007, 2008. I was one of three. There were three of us. But super, super fun. 
That's so, so awesome. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It was really fun to be out there with everybody. But yeah, you know, it's really, it's, I think it's interesting. I used to want to just be a general practitioner. And when I say just, uh, what I mean is an expert in everything, because that's what general practitioners are. They're specialists in everything. And the reason I wanted to do that is because I loved all aspects of veterinary health. I love preventative care. I love treatment care. I love dealing with the puppies and kittens, but also the geriatric and the chronic disease states. And through my time at vet school, I realized that I could hone my you know, skills a little bit more and I could focus a little bit more. And so I wanted to be a surgeon, <laughs> just like my dad. He's a human surgeon. I wanted to be a, a veterinary surgeon. And then I realized, you know what? I actually also want to have a family. I, I want to be a mom. And that isn't to say that surgeons can't have all of those things. They absolutely can. But for me, I, I didn't see that as a clear path. So I went back to you know saying, I want to be a general practitioner because I can do surgery. And I took a veterinary nutrition course and it was very dry. Uh, it wasn't super exciting. But then in my fourth year, we started having to do clinical application. I had to figure out the exact diet that was appropriate for not just one disease, but three, four, five different diseases. And it was a puzzle. And the biggest part of nutrition is communication. I had to communicate what I wanted to feed these pets to their pet parents. And that is how I developed my love of nutrition. I love communicating. I love teaching. I love working with families as a team. And I love the problems. I love the puzzles. And that's what got me here today. Thank you so much. Awesome background. Now, I did want to talk to you when it comes to nutrition. Man, pet owners have so many questions. And it's really confusing because they don't always know who to go, for, go to for advice. And sometimes it may be that person who's in the pet store. Sometimes they're just randomly Googling information. So I wanted to find out a couple of things and focus today's talk really on what we need to know when it comes to food. So my first big question... Grain free. When it comes to food, does dog and cat food need to be grain free? And does it need to be quote filler free? Does grain free, is it actually better or healthier for dogs and cats? I'm so glad you asked that question. That is one of the most common questions that I get as a veterinarian and as a nutritionist. Then there's, you know, a couple different questions that, that lied within there. So we'll start kind of at the beginning. A lot of my pet parents come to me and say that they would like grain free because uh, they have been told or they found somewhere online that grains are fillers. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is a filler? What does that mean? And a filler is going to be any ingredient that is devoid of nutritional properties. So something that you know the animal is not going to benefit from. And grains, unfortunately, don't fit that bill. Grains have different amino acids, which are the little tiny protein building blocks or bodies need them. They have fatty acids. Um, they need them for you know, our cells, for our beautiful animal skin and hair coats. They also have vitamins and minerals. Now they might not have the same you know, concentration or the same quantities as skeletal muscle might have or you know, fruits and vegetables might have, but every single one of those ingredients complements each other. So, so that's false. Grains are not fillers. They absolutely can, and in some cases, you know, should be included in pet food. So the next question is, you know, can our, our pets use them? And the answer is yes. They have different enzymes or, or proteins basically in their bodies that help them to utilize or to use the different parts of grains. So for example, 
again, in the grains, you're going to have protein, you're going to have some fat, you're going to have, you know, carbohydrates, which is uh, a form of glucose. Your body has to have glucose. And these enzymes help their bodies use the glucose in their cells. They have digestive enzymes in their gastrointestinal tract that helps digest the protein component to help digest the fat component. And then in the colon, they've got little tiny bacteria that are beneficial and they're going to use the fibrous outer coating, which helps to optimize the colonic or the GI tract health. It makes everything happy in there. And so, yes, animals absolutely can use grains. So the next part of the question was, you know, are these grain-free diets better or worse than non-grain-free diets? And the biggest message is that any diet, whether it's grain-free or not, is only going to be as good as the manufacturer and the development of the product. So if a manufacturer has a lot of nutrition experts on board, if they test their product, these products undergo feeding trials, it is possible that the grain-free diet could be appropriate. Or conversely, if it's not a grain-free diet, it could still be appropriate for a pet. Whereas if we have a grain-free product that has not been tested, that has minimal to no nutrition experts involved in the product development, that doesn't have quality control measures to make sure that the diet has what our pets need, then it might not be appropriate at all. And in some cases could be worse. So it it honestly, it doesn't matter if it's grain-free or grain-filled, the product is only going to be as good as the development and the quality control and the final product itself. Really important because I know a lot of people nowadays are worried about celiac disease. And so when you go to a restaurant, there's a lot of gluten-free options. How common is celiac disease or gluten sensitivity in dogs and cats? Celiac disease in dogs and cats is next to nil. And so as you touched on, celiac disease is a very real, very serious autoimmune disease in people. And I do have pet parents that request a grain-free product because somebody in their own family has celiac and they could potentially cross-react to any sort of you know grain component that's in the pet's diet. And there are some pets that do have a gluten hypersensitivity, but it is not nearly as common as, as some pet parents are, are led to believe. And so, you know, even on the percentage, we have a very small percentage of truly food allergic patients or pets, and the gluten-free pets are going to be even a smaller component of that. So really, really not common at all. The other important thing to keep in mind is that not all grains have gluten associated with them. So for example, when we think of a a gluten-free diet or something that is celiac friendly, you're going to be trying to avoid things like wheat and, and really any form of wheat. You're also going to be avoiding things like barley and rye, but you might be able to tolerate oats. Oat is a grain and oats is actually on the celiac friendly list keeping in mind that about 20% of celiac patients can cross-react though. Rice is also gluten-free and rice is also included as a grain. Corn, even though you might see corn gluten, it's not the same thing as the gluten found in wheat. So corn is technically gluten-free as well. So not all grains are going to be bad or problematic in our you know, celiac pet parents or in the patients that are gluten intolerant. Excellent information. Now, I understand there was an FDA recall on certain grain-free types of foods, and we could do a whole two-hour radio show on this itself, but I still see a lot of dog owners coming into the veterinary ER and saying, oh, my dog is fed X, Y, and Z, and I have to take the extra two minutes to say, please make sure to check on the FDA recall list because there is an association with grain-free and this type of heart problem. 
And again, we do have to be really aware of this, but I still see a lot of dogs on this. Now, what do pet owners need to know, specifically probably more dog owners when it comes to grain-free and heart disease? That is an incredible question. And unfortunately, the answer is not as clear as I think a lot of our pet parents hope that it would be. So what Dr. Lee is talking about is certain diets have been implicated in the development of a disease called dilated cardiomyopathy. What it means is the heart gets stretched out and is really thin, so it can't pump well anymore. And the diets that have been potentially implicated, they are grain-free, but the link is not as clear. Now, taurine in cats is essential. They cannot make their own to a sufficient quantity to do all the things it needs to have happen. In dogs, it is a non-essential or a conditionally essential amino acid, but taurine is critical for the development and for the maintenance of a strong and normal heart muscle. So this question now is, are these grain-free diets deficient in taurine? Well, some of them don't even have taurine and pet parents come to me and they're like, oh, you know, this is problematic. But again, keeping in mind, dogs don't have to have taurine. They can make their own. So the question is, are the precursors, are the things that add together to make taurine, are those lacking? And technical analysis says no. So the challenge here is, do these companies that have been implicated do, you know, simple addition analysis? So basically, you know, A ingredient plus B ingredient equals C diet, or are they testing their product post-manufacturing to see how these ingredients work together? So for example, fiber, really high fiber diets can bind certain nutrients, making them unavailable for the body to fully digest and absorb. And it is possible that super high you know, fiber products are going to make these amino acids. So taurine is an amino acid and you have to have precursor amino acids to make it. Maybe those are unavailable. And, and the thing is that multiple nutrients, not just taurine, are also critical for normal heart development and function. And so the reason why I say it's not clear cut, some people might be like, well, it's taurine, it's not taurine. We absolutely have pets that develop this disease that show improvement with a diet change. So we know it's diet related. We have pets that develop this disease and get taurine supplementation and improve. So we know in some cases, taurine absolutely is involved. However, we have pets that get this disease and don't necessarily show any sort of taurine deficiency, and yet they still improve with the diet change. So it demonstrates to us that it's not just the diet. There's absolutely a metabolic and internal problem with some of these patients, and it can be genetic. There's a certain breed of dogs, um, certain breeds of dogs, I should say, that genetically have issues forming their own taurine. We've also seen cases in the same household, one dog develops you know, this heart disease, the other one doesn't, but, you know, again, they changed the diet. And so it's really going to be, unfortunately, patient and pet dependent. It's going to be a metabolic factor. It's going to be a nutrient factor in addition to amino acids, B vitamins, you know, minerals, things like that. And honestly, a theory that I have, there's an obesity epidemic and a lot of pet parents try to cut calories on their own to try to accomplish weight loss. But when we cut calories, on an over-the-counter diet, we also cut nutrients. So maybe we are also inducing a nutrient deficiency if you know there's a, an, a weight loss component that we're trying to accomplish at the same time. Great information. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is also controversial, feeding raw food diets. Now, I will say just seeing it in the veterinary ER, I would say, if I had to guess, probably less than 10% of 
my dog owners or cat owners are on it. And we do have some that are in frozen diets, are on different types. And I will fully disclose, I've worked with sled dogs, thousands of sled dogs who've been on it, but there's definitely some public health risks that we worry about. Do you mind just talking about raw food diets, the pros, the cons, like what is your general rule with them as a nutritionist? So the first thing I think that is important to share is that I work in a high volume hospital, multi-specialty hospital that does have an intensive care unit. And so my professional opinion is definitely based on the cases that I see and um, my view that veterinarians are part of the public health um, measures. And so as a, a public health you know, professional and somebody that works with critically ill patients on a daily basis, I personally do not recommend nor endorse the use of raw foods. Now, the truth is a lot of pet food companies are taking new and innovative and, and pretty strict measures to try to reduce the risk of bacterial, viral, and parasitic contamination. And a lot of them do a really good job. That being said, because there are higher volumes of not only pets that are you know, critically ill or potentially immunocompromised. We also have a lot of pet parents and people that are critically ill and immunocompromised. So for example, again, I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old. They're not sick, but they are what I would call immunoincompetent. They are very little. Their immune system has not fully developed. They would be at a higher risk of getting a foodborne illness, whether it's from people food or from dog food, because they are young. The same is true of pregnant populations and geriatric populations. The older we get and the sicker we are, the less our immune system functions normally and appropriately. And so the higher risk we have or those people have of getting sick. And so getting back to the question about raw, there is a higher risk that raw foods will basically have foodborne pathogens or foodborne illness that pets can have and pass on to their beloved pet parents and family. And so again, as a public health professional, that is a risk that I personally am not willing to take or to make for my pet parents. And, and you know, most people don't walk around with a sign that says, I'm sick today. And so we have to make a, a decision to make things basically healthier and better for the whole population. And again, that doesn't mean that all diets are infected by any means or that they're bad, but there is a higher risk. Now, the FDA has a center of veterinary medicine, and they've actually done several studies and showed that of a group of commercially raw diets tested, up to 16% were actually contaminated with a bacteria that could cause clinical illness. And again, to me, that is just a risk I'm not willing to take. And the benefits most of the benefits are anecdotal and they actually haven't been tested in, in what is deemed to be, you know, a solid scientific study where, you know, the raw diet was nutritionally identical to the commercially cooked diet and compared in that regard. Most clients say, you know, that the stool is better, the teeth are better, this and the other is better. Well, it's going to be based on the nutrient profile in terms of appropriateness for the pet. And a lot of these homemade or raw diets have minimal fiber. So the stool will be smaller because of that. It's all about the nutrient profile and the ingredients, not necessarily about it being raw versus not raw. You know, it's so hard. I wanted to get backyard chickens. And one of the reasons why I didn't was because just like you, I have a young toddler and we know young toddlers are not great at washing their hands. And even despite COVID and learning how to wash your hands, as long as, you know, 
they can. The risk of backyard salmonella because of having chickens was one of the things I was worried about. And so I will reiterate the same thing. Most veterinary professionals are concerned from the public health risk because if there's a risk of salmonella or campylobacter or listeria or all these bacteria that can be transmitted, we do become concerned. So the other thing I wanted to talk about, balancing. When it comes to feeding a balanced diet and people, you know, if people want to feed raw, what are some of your takeaways? Do you have to get it balanced by a board certified nutritionist? Can I just buy like a pet tab vitamin from a pet store? Uh, what are your general uh, recommendations to make it balanced? So obviously I am a little biased in this regard because I am a board certified veterinary nutritionist. I would strongly, strongly recommend that if a pet parent is wanting to formulate their own pet food to at least have it checked, if not formulated by a board certified veterinary nutritionist, the things that a diet has to have to be complete. And these are general categories. Um, I'm not given a recipe here. Uh, it has to have a, a protein component. And so that's going to typically be, you know, some sort of animal protein, animal skeletal muscle, something like that. It's got to have fat. It's got to have a source of essential fatty acids, again, to support the normal cells and the hair and the skin and hormones and all of these beautiful things. And that can sometimes come from skin. It can sometimes come, you know, from fat deposits in the body, or it can come in the form of, of an oil. You know, a lot of diets will have oil added has to have a calcium supplement separate, typically separate from a multivitamin. Most multivitamins that are available, they'll have a little calcium, but not enough to really support the maintenance of healthy teeth and healthy bones. And what a lot of pet parents don't know is calcium is essential for our body to work. It's a part of multiple enzymes and it helps our muscles move. You have to have enough calcium to do all of these really important things. And then it also has to have a separate multivitamin. So typically when I'm evaluating in homemade diets, it's missing in anywhere from five to 10 really, really critical nutrients. And you can absolutely add those in, but most, you know, generic pet multivitamins don't have all of the things that a diet is missing. And so that's not to say that, you know, an, an unnamed generic brand of, of pet vitamin couldn't be helpful. It, it might absolutely be helpful to help correct and balance any deficiencies, but it is unlikely to be sufficient for all of the deficiencies that are potentially occurring with an unbalanced or unformulated pet food diet. And, you know, one of the reasons I recommend my colleagues in the American College of Veterinary Nutrition is because we have extensive training on diet formulation, but also something that a lot of people don't know about nutritionists is that, yeah, we know what diet to feed, but really we're experts in metabolism and we're experts in biochemistry. And so we can tailor these recipes for our specific pet parents and their pets and make sure that the diet is appropriate. And that isn't to say that another, you know, nutritionist out there couldn't do that, but that is genuinely what our training is about. Such great information. We'll be right back with Dr. Bullen on more about pet nutrition right after these messages. As a veterinarian, I want you to keep your dog as healthy and happy as possible. After all, our dogs reward us with fun, laughs, love, and a ton of affection. Well, what better way to reward your dog's loving companionship with Rockwell's Pets Pro Natural Dog Vitamins? These vitamins help provide a powerful fusion of amino acids, trace minerals, vitamins, digestive enzymes, aloe vera, and glucosamine, which helps support a healthy canine metabolism and promotes a strong immune system. 
Plus, they're 100% satisfaction guaranteed and produced in the United States. Help give your dog a healthy skin coat, healthy hips and joints, and immune support. For more information, go to rockwellpetspro.com. That's rockwellpetspro.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to ER Vet and Pet Life Radio. Right now, we are speaking with Dr. Bullen, a board-certified nutritionist, about what to feed our dogs and cats. What we've learned so far is you have to be careful and make sure that the dog food that you're feeding or the cat food that you're feeding isn't on that FDA recall list when it comes to grain-free and heart-related changes. If you are feeding raw, please talk to your veterinarian because we become really concerned about the public health risks with salmonella, E. coli, a couple other bacteria. Now, the next important thing I wanted to talk to you about, and you brought up a great resource that I wanted to step back and address, is the American College of Veterinary Nutrition. You guys have a great website, and people can go straight to www.acvn.org. And those extra letters, so when you see D-A-C-V-N or D-A-C whatever, it means that that veterinarian is a board-certified specialist. They have done an additional internship, several years of a residency or fellowship to become the experts, the teachers in this area. And I do really recommend that if you have any questions, that you go to the acvn.org website because you can find if there's veterinary nutritionists in your area. There are so many that do online consultation, and we'll make sure to talk about that in just a little bit. Now, Dr. Bull and I wanted to focus on cats. We can't forget our feline friends. When it comes to cats, we're taught that they're carnivores. And a lot of cat owners become concerned because they look at the cat food and it has carbs in it. Can cats have carbs? And what do we need to know about that? You are absolutely correct. Cats are obligate carnivores. However, they have digestive enzymes and they have internal enzymes in their body to utilize carbohydrates um, and primarily to utilize glucose. Um, That is what our cells need. They need glucose. It is true, however, that obligate carnivores do best at lower levels of carbohydrates. There's a couple studies out there um, that we had to study to be a nutritionist (laughs) that demonstrated there is, you know, at high levels of carbohydrates, the cats don't usually tolerate it very well. And that is because they are lacking a certain enzyme that optimizes at higher concentrations of blood glucose, but 100% they can optimize at lower levels. And so it's perfectly fine for the feline diets, for the cat diets to have carbohydrates in them. And, you know, one of the really important things is that a lot of these kibbles that our pet parents and myself included feed our cats for convenience sake. Uh, You know, I'm a a full-time employee, have two small kids. You better believe I've got some kibble at home. I've got to feed my cats. You have to have a carbohydrate component to make that kibble pop. I don't know if anybody's ever made cookies without the flour. They don't turn out so well. The same is true about pet food and kibbles. There has to be some sort of carbohydrate in there to make that kibble pop once it comes out of what's called the dye plate. It's basically a big cookie cutter that goes around in a circle. And the cats, again, they've got the digestive enzymes. They've got the internal enzymes. They absolutely can utilize or or use carbohydrates. We just have to make sure that it's at a right level. And the good news is that the 
major manufacturers that are reputable, they're actually the ones that have done the research. They're the ones that have been able to demonstrate what a good level is. All right. You bring up a great point. Pet food companies. How do you find a credible one? Now, I will say, and you know this, like the pet food industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Are the smaller ones better? Are the ones that say organic better? What do I need to know when it comes to picking a brand of food and a pet food company behind it? So picking a brand of food is actually going to be a a really intensive process and also one that is, is very personal. Now, nutrition 100% is, is a science, you know, there are facts and figures, but it is also something that is, that is intimate and emotional because that's the way that we as pet parents can take control of our, of our pets' lives. You know, there's not a lot we could do to control anything, especially during a pandemic, but choosing a pet food, choosing treats is one way that we can exhibit that control and a lot of ways that pet parents show love and affection to their pets. But it is really complicated. It really is. And so this kind of goes back to what we said earlier about grain-free A diet is only going to be as good as the manufacturer, the formulation, the quality control, whether it's small or large. And the truth is, most of the large companies, they've been around long enough and they've got the finances to invest in some of those more expensive quality control measures. So it doesn't mean that a small company is bad. They just might not have the funds to really really invest in some of the areas where it matters. But choosing choosing a diet, that is going to be very personal. That's something that every pet parent has to think about. And I would strongly recommend talking and discussing with their veterinarian about. Veterinarians are a wonderful resource to help guide and to help, you know, be a sounding board for some of these ideas that we have. But if our pet parents are interested, there is a wonderful website that actually can really help making informed pet food decisions. And it's called the Pet Nutrition Alliance. And the website is petnutritionalliance.org. And they've really set it out in a way that I find very helpful as a nutritionist when I'm trying to, you know, share this information, but also as a pet parent when new foods come on the market that I've even never heard of. And these are going to be things like, you know, does a company have a nutrition department at all? If they do have a nutrition department, what are the credentials and how many nutritionists do they have on staff? So for example, if a pet food doesn't even have a nutrition department, you know, maybe they're going to get one in the future, but they might not be spending as much, you know, to invest on the actual nutrition of the product and more on just the sales or the marketing. If they do have a nutrition department, is it somebody with a PhD Or as Dr. Lee said, do they have DACVN after their name, showing that they're experts in their field? Do they have more than one? Do they do feeding trials? Now, feeding trials are not always the end-all be-all, but they're a really good way to demonstrate if a diet helps an animal not just survive, but helps them thrive. Do they do any quality control? Do they not only test the product for a nutrient analysis, but are they also testing for bacterial, heavy metal contaminants? And, you know, God forbid, let's say that there is an issue and a recall. How do they make it right? Do they have a diet vault? Do they have ways to contact the consumers and the pet parents to try to make things right? All of these are going to be, you know, really, really good questions that a pet parent has to ask themselves to feel comfortable with a product, um, you know, and, and research. Do, do they participate in active peer-reviewed research? Is that research available to the public? Really, really good questions to ask. So again, you know, that's a lot of information. I would strongly recommend that our pet parents go to the petnutritionalliance.org backslash chart backslash, and you can actually see a good list of questions to ask ourselves. And they even did this 
wonderful, wonderful dare to ask study. And you can type in your pet's food and see if that manufacturer actually answered the questions. Fantastic information. Dr. Bullen, thank you so much. You know, it's so important that pet owners be aware of all the resources that are out there. So being able to go to petnutritionalliance.org, being able to go to acvn.org and find a board certified veterinary nutritionist who can help you. There's a lot of misinformation on the internet and you really want to talk to the experts about this. So I always say, if you want to cook a diet for your pet, you're not sure what to feed, please check with a board-certified veterinary nutritionist, talk to your veterinarian. There are a lot of great resources out there. Keep in mind when it comes to grain-free that dogs and cats rarely have celiac disease. And please be aware it is okay and safe to feed grain. More importantly, you want to make sure that the food that you're feeding isn't on that FTA recall list for grain-free foods resulting in heart failure or what we call dilated cardiomyopathy. Remember, when it comes to cats, yes, they are carnivores, but in order to make that kibble, they do need a little bit of carbohydrate in there. Totally fine. They can totally handle it. And Dr. Bullen and I will fully disclose both our cats are on dry food. And part of that is lifestyle choices, but my cat loves it and has done really well. Such important information. Dr. Bullen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be here. Now, I did want to ask, I know that you do do some online consultation for pet owners. Do you mind just giving some information where pet owners can find you for more info? Absolutely. So if a pet owner is wanting to work with a nutritionist in their general area, that is perfectly fine. As long as they are reaching out to one of my wonderful colleagues, I don't have a problem with that at all. So a full list of veterinary nutritionists can be found at ACVN dot org backslash directory. And there is a list of all the boarded nutritionists and who is taking requests currently. If you are interested in, in working with myself and my wonderful team, I'm very, very fortunate. I have a, a, another clinician and I have two nurses and we truly take a team and a family approach. Then please feel free to reach out to us. Our email, bit of a doozy, apologies, is nutrition.vsh carolinas at bluepearlvet.com. Again, that is nutrition.vshcarolinas at bluepearlvet.com. We do work on a referral basis, but if you reach out to us, we are happy to make contact with your veterinarian and we'll make sure that everybody's included in your pet's treatment plan. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Bullen, for all that you do to keep our dogs and cats healthy. Well, that brings me to the end of today's show. Find me at drjustinelee.com, on Facebook or Instagram at drjustinelee, or email me your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time, and we want to thank our guests, Dr. Lindsay Bullen and Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on petliferadio.com.